electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, Elon Musk says he has chosen his successor as CEO of Twitter. Who could the mysterious pick be? There may be a telling hint. The EPA's power move on power plants. How an unprecedented step to cap emissions could turn out the lights on the energy industry. Jamie Dimon's broadside at short sellers. Are they really the ones to blame for the beatdown in bank stocks? The data may prove otherwise. He was one of the first humans defeated by AI, but now chess legend Gary Kasparov says we have nothing to fear. He is here to make the case. And believe it or not, some good news. American workers are happier than they have been in decades. What? We'll dig in what's behind it. All that and much more. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Welcome, everybody. Well, good evening here on the East. Good afternoon out West. What a packed show that we have got for you tonight. We're going to get to all those stories we just referenced in a moment. But first up, some fast-moving developments out of Washington. President Biden and congressional leaders have punted a critical debt ceiling meeting into next week. It had been scheduled for 11 a.m. tomorrow morning. Let's get more now on what exactly is going on behind the scenes. Kayla Tausche is at the White House. Good evening, Brian. The news of the postponement coming today after market close and after two days of staff level meetings that will continue through the weekend as negotiators try to find common ground between two fairly distant positions. At a press conference this evening, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the decision to delay was mutual. The White House didn't cancel the meeting. All of the leaders decided it's probably in the best of our interest to let the staff meet again before we get back together. Sources familiar with the meeting suggested the development was a positive one, that the staff meetings were productive and it didn't make sense to bring the principals back yet. White House Legislative Affairs Affairs Chief Louisa Terrell spent more than two hours on Capitol Hill today behind closed doors with top aides to the congressional leaders. But even amid that seemingly positive momentum, McCarthy had these words tonight for the administration. I have not seen from there uh, a seriousness of the White House that they want to deal. It seems like they want to default more than they want to deal. Republicans have approached the talks with four policy items to negotiate. First, reforming the permitting process, which the administration supports in theory. And just last night, John Podesta, who leads energy policy for a part of the administration, gave a speech on that. The second is clawing back unspent COVID aid, which President Biden mentioned this week. But it only represents a small fraction of the savings being sought. Number three, requiring work for those on Medicaid and food stamps. Democrats are not open to that. And finally, capping spending levels into the future. And there it's the question of just how much. And it's those last two, Brian, that could prove to be the thorns in the negotiations, which would need to reach some sort of conclusion or rough outline by the time President Biden leaves for Asia on Wednesday. Kayla Tausche at the White House, live for us. Kayla, and we appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
All right, let's dig in, try to figure out what exactly this means, get to our panel. Former Democratic Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark Global Investments, Victoria Fernandez, and former Council of Economic Advisors, Acting Chair Tyler Goodspeed. Thank you all for joining Last Call. Representative Ryan, should we read this as a potential positive development? I think so. Any Anytime the this, this staff's making the kind of progress that you just reported, I think that's always a good sign. Uh, and so it sounds like things are moving forward. And those four issues that, that you put up, I think of permitting reform, uh, you know, that should be something that anybody who's interested in, in having an American energy policy should be for that. Uh, it will unleash the IRA money, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act money for the green, clean technologies, but it'll also help with uh, permitting for natural gas lines as well. That should be something everybody should agree on. And I think the spending caps coming out of, you know, an era of making all of these investments to finally get an industrial policy, CHIPS, Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Bill, we should all be talking about uh, our getting our fiscal house in order. So I think there's room here to make a deal. You know, Tyler, last night there was a town hall with former President Donald Trump. You may have heard of the guy. A lot of people did not want him on TV, but there he was. And he was asked about this. Now, we have heard a lot about if we don't get a deal and we get a debt default, it is effectively doomsday. President Biden has said there's going to be millions of job loss. The market's going to crash. Donald Trump, I want to play a soundbite from the town hall on CNN last night where he seemed to think it may not be that big of a deal. Listen, and then I'll get your response. I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. It's really psychological more than anything else. And it could be very bad. It could be maybe nothing. Maybe it's a you have a bad week or a bad day. But look, you have to cut your costs. Tyler, do you think that there is a chance that if we did do a default, we did one in 2011, I believe it was. A, it was kind of a technical default. We breezed right through that that the markets could hold up or would it really be as bad as many have said? Well, I think there's a distribution of possible outcomes depending in part on how long we would remain in a, a period of technical default. If it went for a very long time, then we could have severe repercussions. We could have ratings downgrades. We could have a complete collapse in the secured overnight financing market for which U.S. Treasuries and U.S. T-bills are used as collateral. But if it's a short-term short-term deal that is sort of resolved very quickly, then I think market participants could look at this and, and recognize it for what it is mm-hmm. and, and quickly move on. Because, and one more to you, Tyler, we could fund the government through other budget appropriations processes, as I understand it, at least in the short term. Is that correct? So there's an open debate about this, about how much sort of payment prioritization the United States Treasury could do. I suspect that Secretary Yellen would try to make use of as much discretion as as she could if indeed we were to get past the X date. Victoria, you manage money for a living. I mean, the market, yeah, the Dow's down four days in a row, but let's not make much of it. It's down a percent or two on the year. The market certainly does not think either that we're going to default Or if we do, it's that big of a deal, because I would imagine if we did, we'd see thousand point down days. How do you read it? No, 
I think that's right, Brian. And look, there's a reason that the market is not too concerned right now. One, this is not the market's first rodeo around a debt ceiling debate where we usually get a solution, um, if not at the very last day, maybe one or two days after. And look at the numbers. And I think that's what the market's doing. If you look at the last 12 months ending in April, the interest outlays by the government, it's about $584 billion. If you look at the intake, from the government during that same time period, it's 4.5 trillion. So I think the markets are saying, look, yes, not everything is gonna be paid, but there is plenty of money there in order to cover principal and interest payments, at least for a short period of time. And even the bond market is telling you this, you look at one month bills, five and a half percent yield because there's a lot of volatility right now with the brinkmanship that's going on. But the market hears that clink, clink, clink. That's the proverbial can going down the road. So you look at two month bills, they're actually down around 4.8%. Mm. So less risk on two month going back up again as we get into the third quarter of the year. So I think the market is anticipating a short term deal um, and then reevaluating it later in the year along with the budget items. You know, Tim, Victoria's down there in Houston and they've got the Houston rodeo and it happens pretty much every single year. <laughs> and she's talking about this debt ceiling fight, which is starting to become almost an annual tradition in the United States. I mean, is this is this going to be a thing where we're going to do it next year and in 2025 and the market and everybody else is just going to have to get used to this dance that we do in D.C. for good or bad? Well, God, I hope not. I mean, there's so many pressing issues for the country right now, rebuilding the middle class, dominating these industries of the future. We've got the, the war with Ukraine. We've got energy issues like there's so much education bringing shop class back like all of these things we should be working on in a bipartisan way and we're screwing around with this nonsense and i think really everybody has to take some responsibility for that there's a lot of people in congress and i served there for 20 years they were there they voted for the two wars in iraq and afghanistan that we put on the credit card uh, paying for all the vets who came back with injuries uh, that well went on the credit card. The Medicare Part D bill went on the credit mm -hmm. card. Two Bush tax cuts, the Trump tax cut. Like there's plenty of Republicans uh, with blood on their hands here when it comes to the, the debt that we have and the, and the annual deficits that we have. And then, of course, COVID and then the investments that we made in the last year to, I think, rebuild our, our industrial base here in the United States. We're starting to see chip manufacturing come back, electric vehicles, batteries like it's starting to work. We had to invest in our infrastructure. So let's be adults, solve the problem, yeah. and then as we move forward, let's make sure we work towards a balanced budget. That's what adults need to be doing. This That's is, this is a bipartisan, nonpartisan show. I mean, Tyler, I, I would say that both parties are guilty of spending like drunken sailors, but I don't want to insult drunken sailors. I, it's not like the GOP has been exactly some some, you know, fiscal moderation role model. I mean, they voted to raise the debt ceiling a few times a couple of years ago. President Biden, for his part, voted against raising the debt ceiling in 06, citing, you guessed it, too much debt. I mean, this is sort of disgusting political posturing at its most dramatic. 
Well, I, I think it's it's a political risk, and and that's why several rating agencies, after the the, the scenarios of 2011 and 2013, downgraded either downgraded the United States government's credit rating or downgraded their outlook for the U.S. credit rating, and the response of the of the Obama administration was to instruct the SEC and the DOJ to go after the ratings agencies that downgraded the United States government. And whereas I think the, 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 the rating agencies were quite correct to highlight that this is a political risk to the outlook for yeah. the, the, the rating and creditworthiness of the United States federal government's debt. Well, if you're scared of the government, maybe you won't do certain things. You know, we go back to 2011, Victoria, and I was anchoring. And I, you know, the technical default, and then we had a government shutdown. I think it was again in 2014. Guess what? I think the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ have doubled since then. Doubled. So when you look at this for your clients, I would imagine there is short-term worry. But is this the biggest thing you've got on your plate from a, from a market and investment perspective? Or is it something else? Maybe a recession? <laughs> the dreaded R word. Did you hear that? Sorry, um, I thought I, I whispered Brian- it. <laughs> Yeah, you look back at 2011, though, and realize the biggest drop that year in the S&P was not before the debt ceiling was finished. It was after Obama and Boehner made the deal because liquidity comes out of the market. The Treasury stops pulling from their Treasury general account. I think we have to worry about that later this year for exactly the word you mentioned. We do think we're going to get a mild recession later this year. You combine that with less liquidity in the market and more austerity, which we're probably going to get once a debt ceiling and the budget debate is finalized, then I think you're setting yourself up for concerns later in the year. It's kind of a trifecta of items coming together. So we're trying to be more defensive with our clients. That doesn't mean that we won't invest in the bond market or Mm -hmm. the equity market. I just think you have to be very choosy and very defensive because there's going to be a lot of volatility around all of these issues, especially the Fed as well, right? Let's, Let's not forget the Fed and when they're going to start cutting interest rates probably next year. I do Lots wonder, I do wonder though, Victoria, if that's, a, if that's an oxymoron, mild recession, jumbo shrimp, pretty ugly. There you go. Tim Ryan, Victoria Fernandez, Tyler Goodspeed, thank you very much. All right, up next, the new queen of the Twitter roost, Elon Musk, has picked a woman as his CEO's successor, but he's not naming who. We're going to try to figure it out. Coming up, plus... Jamie Dimon calling for a crackdown on short sellers, blaming them for fueling the regional bank mess. Meantime, a top executive at J.P. Morgan just sold over 100,000 shares of stock. We'll tell you about that. It's breaking and it's next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. 
bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, welcome back. We have got some breaking news here on Last Call, and this is breaking news about Twitter, but it's also breaking news about us here in our NBC Universal family. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that it's NBC Universal's Linda Yaccarino who is in talks to become the CEO of Twitter. Linda Yaccarino effectively runs our entire advertising and more business here at NBC Universal. She is a friend of ours. This is from the Wall Street Journal. This is not some internal leak, although, Linda, if you're out there, you know my email. Send me an email. Linda Yaccarino, NBC Universal, one of our top executives, an amazing human being, is in talks to become the CEO of Twitter. That, according to Wall Street Journal, citing sources. For more on this, let's bring in CNBC media and technology reporter Alex Sherman and president and CEO of Mountain, Mark Douglas. Mountain, by the way, builds advertising software for brands to target their TV campaigns. Alex, the journal, our friend, Linda Yaccarino. It's not confirmed. What do you think? I've been making phone calls on this myself for the past 45 minutes, uh, solely focused on Linda Yaccarino. So uh, assuming it is her, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, she is very connected to the advertising community, and Twitter clearly has gone through quite a bit of struggles with the advertising community since Elon Musk bought Twitter. Linda Yaccarino just interviewed Elon Musk about three weeks ago on a panel where uh, the point of the whole panel was for Musk to get feedback from advertisers about what they like and mostly dislike about the service. Yaccarino was clearly uh, very up to speed on what was going on at Twitter during that interview and uh, kind of pressed Elon fairly hard on his policies and just for clarification about what he was doing. She was telling him, can you please stop tweeting after 3 a.m.? The advertising community would really like that. She praised him on what a hard worker he was. Of course, Elon Musk runs uh, SpaceX and Tesla and Twitter or did at least until a few hours ago uh, when he said he was stepping down as CEO. Uh, I don't think that this will change the broader strategy of Twitter. Elon Musk still owns Twitter. It's going to be his company. Mm -hmm. But you're putting in now someone who has a long track record uh, with advertisers from a legacy media business. So you have to wonder, will Twitter start to pick up some other video and legacy media-like traits as we go? Yeah, and again, if you hear me typing, I apologize, guys, because probably like Alex, I'm sitting here trying to ping people internally like, did you see this? Can we confirm it? Um, Mark, let's talk about this. I don't know if you know Linda. I do. By the way, big, big news for the Penn State crowd. She's a proud Penn Stater. I'm sure they're going to be happy if they have a CEO in their family. But assuming it is Linda, who is one of the top ad executives in the United States, Advertising is technology now. I think you would agree with that. Yeah. What would this hiring tell you about Musk's sort of vision for what Twitter can and should be? 
Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't say I'm friends with Linda, but uh, Mountain has a big partnership with NBC, so I definitely oh, thank you. have yeah, I definitely <laughs> met her. Um, and I think she's a very capable choice. I personally think that if I was Elon, I would pick someone. Who, you definitely want a revenue-driving executive, advertising executive, but I think I would have picked someone who is more like ex-Facebook, like Carolyn Everson, who ran advertising at Facebook, ran a $100 billion business at Facebook. I mean, I think there was speculation early in the day about, you know, is there any chance it could be Sheryl Sandberg? She's denied it. So I think Linda is a very, very capable choice. But I think it's very hard to take a social network and build revenue without having kind of that direct response background that you get from Google, that you get from Meta and from companies like but, that. But Mark, so, yeah. as, and by the way, thank you for the partnership. You clearly have your genius and have great partners. <laughs> But 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 that tells you, I think, that Musk is saying you know, the platform is already built, right? So yeah. you're not looking for someone who is a software engineer by trade. What you're now trying to do is figure out how to make money other than charging people whatever 89, like me, 89 bucks a year so I can have the edit feature on my Twitter. I mean, he wants this clearly to become some kind of a Google-ish ad type platform. Right. So I think that that's the thing is that this idea that Twitter is going to replace the multi-billion revenue stream they have from advertising and replace it from subscriptions. This pick, if it's true, is essentially an admission that that's not going to work. So I think if she does wind up being the lead, she will wind up needing the support of people who have that, you know, direct response advertising background, because that's where all of the real money in mm. social networks comes from. She certainly could lead it. And I think you're right. She can definitely, definitely reassure advertisers as to the stability and the brand safety, which is what advertisers are worried about. What am I or my ads going to appear next to? That's what they ultimately really care about. So yeah. I think it's important. And we have reached out to our parent company, Comcast, for uh, any kind of a quote, Alex, or confirmation. We can reach out to, I guess, effectively our bosses at NBC Universal to try to confirm this as well. The timeline, we don't know if it's Linda, that's the journal, but Alex, the timeline, weeks out would make sense because Linda runs the upfronts, the most critical time of advertising spending for our business. I would imagine that if it is indeed Linda, we are going to wait a couple of weeks for her to take over as Twitter CEO because Linda, she's got to get us through the upfront. So the timing would seem to make sense. Yeah, the NBC upfront is Monday of this yeah. coming week. Uh, and Linda Yaccarino is front and center at that event every single year. So you're right. You'd imagine she would participate in that and then move on. Also, just from a from a personal career progression for Linda Yaccarino, of course, I, NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell stepped down recently. Comcast put Mike Cavanaugh essentially in charge of that and has basically said publicly, we don't intend on making a change anytime soon. We're going to roll with Mike Cavanaugh as the leader of this business. So if Linda Yaccarino wanted to become NBC Universal's CEO after Jeff Shell, that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. Uh, so it may make sense for her to say, you know what, this seems like a logical time for me to make a, a sort of my next career yeah. jump here. And obviously, Twitter CEO uh, is an extremely high profile job and a chance for her to turn that business around. I mean, Elon Musk has several times said Twitter may go bankrupt. I mean, that's how much trouble we're in theoretically here 
if we don't turn this business around. So she's going to be given uh, sort of the keys to this business very much at a low point. The valuation has been cut significantly since Elon Musk paid $44 billion for it, uh, you know, less than a year ago. So she has a chance you know, to come to walk away, yeah. I think, as, as a winning and- CEO if she's able to do this right. Yeah, and a couple things. Number one, if this is true, listen, for all the big talk in technology, uh, I'm trying to think about all the, the, the female CEOs at major technology firms. <laughs> there would be zero, right? I mean, there was Marissa Meyer years ago at, at Yahoo, but Linda would be the first in a major tech platform. So, congr- by the way, congratulations to her if indeed this is true. But... Outside of that, okay, Linda's coming from Turner. She was there 19 years, NBC Universal with us for 11 years. Again, assuming this is true, these are, we are traditional media. We have, you know, Law and & Order, and we've got sports, and we've got great shows like, you know, this one. Twitter is a different platform, right? There's a lot of bad speech on there. There's a lot of crazy people. There's a lot of bots. Is, is Twitter, I mean, we use it in the media. Is it a good platform for an advertising executive? It's, it's, is that for me? So I, I think Twitter is, is a huge concern for advertisers related to brand safety. And I think she's, that's the main issue. Can you clean up its reputation in terms of brand safety? I think she has the, 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 the skills, you know, the, the, you know, kind of the stature and the knowledge and relationships to do it. Um, it's very political. So that's something new that she's really going to have to navigate. Who Anyone who's in this role is going to have to navigate. If you can navigate that and then you can reach consumers, every advertiser will follow. So it can be done, and that's yeah. the way to do it. And she is and also, and Bri- Bri- Alex, Brian, jump just, in. Yep. just to jump in. When she was interviewing Elon Musk, and you can YouTube that and watch it, much of that interview is very much centered around that issue of brand safety. What are you doing for our advertising community to make sure that we know when a, when we are, are buying advertising on Twitter, it's not going to go down the rabbit hole of tro- trolls and bots and negative content? And Elon Musk sort of laid out, look, we have a set of words. This is all done algorithmically. It's not like we have you know humans deciding this. And whether or not that is the way things are done moving forward will be up to Linda Yaccarino. But clearly that's something yeah. that she is very familiar with. But by with. the way, Alex, like I, I don't think I don't think, you know, advertisers don't care if it's bots or algorithms or a computer placing ads. Right. All you care about is if you're Pepsi or United Airlines or General Motors, if you're going to advertise on Twitter, you need to know that your brand is not going to be you know, right next to some hate speech, right next to some disgusting, gory video, right next to whatever it may be that does, unfortunately, still get out on Twitter. I mean, I would imagine this is Linda's job one. And by the way, she is also the chairman of the Ad Council. So the Ad Council is the trade group for basically all the advertisers out there. Linda was named the chair of that in the fall of 2021. So she has access to a bunch of other people like herself. And you've got to convince the head of Pepsi's marketing or Bud Light or whatever it might be. Maybe Bud Light's a bad example right now. But whoever it might be, that they need to be on the right platform and it's safe, safe. Yeah, I don't think you care how it's done as long as it's done. And Elon Musk's defense, by the way, to that was that Apple has continued to advertise on Twitter throughout his ownership. Disney has continued to advertise on Twitter throughout his ownership. And if Disney is advertising children's movies, 
They must feel safe advertising on the platform. So in other words, what we're doing is already working. Uh, so I think a lot of this will just be getting advertisers comfortable with what Twitter is doing, how they're doing it, and, 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 and any sort of uh, rationale that what they're going to be doing in the future uh, makes sense and isn't going to get too politicized by Elon Musk's personal views. Yeah, yeah Mark, that, that's, that's, you know, even with great computers, that's probably easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, is that the reason Twitter was vulnerable when Elon took over and advertisers kind of were concerned about the platform is because they had thousands of advertisers, while Google has millions, while Meta has millions, while Amazon has millions. And so I think part of this job, yes, you're going to have those big advertisers on board, but you have to build a long-tail advertising business to insulate yourself from any concerns, from economic downturns, and from the judgment of, you know, the world's top 100 CMOs. So I think yeah. it's a dual job. You got to go down both tracks if you're going to build Twitter into, if it's going to ever get back to the 48, I think $48 billion valuation that Elon paid. Mark Douglas of Mountain and Alex. You know, Alex, what, you know what stinks about this right now? Is that both of us are on TV uh -huh. and our kids are, Alex and I's son play on the same Little League team. Do any score? We have a score update? I don't know, but go Navy Red Sox. Shout That's, out Navy that, Red they're, 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 our, Alex and I's sons are both on the same Little League team, and the game is right now. If you get a score update, Alex, let me know. Alex Sherman, Mark Douglas of Mountain, really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, yes, the team is the Red Sox. All right, speaking of Elon, let's see what Tesla's doing after hours. That stock is up. Maybe investors happy that Elon Musk will return more of his focus away from Twitter and back to Tesla anyway. If this is accurate, our congratulations to Linda Yaccarino, who is a good Penn State Nittany Lion and just a terrific person overall. All right, on deck. Is it about to be lights out for many of America's old power plants? Dramatic new rules DC is set to impose and is some worrying we could run out of electricity. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Let's talk energy, because there was a huge piece of news today that you have to hear about. The EPA is laying out new rules targeting emissions out of America's coal and natural gas plants. The rules, they're complicated. But here's the bottom line. The new rule, citing a climate crisis, would require power plants to cut emissions using what's called carbon capture and storage, CCS. It's a new technology. It basically strips out the nasty stuff from the emissions and then pipes it underground can do that or the plants can switch to hydrogen as a fuel source. Now, these rules are a big deal. Carbon capture, which is actually not loved by many on the environmental side, is part of Biden's edict to try to wipe out carbon dioxide emissions from the power industry within 12 years. Now, keep this in mind. Right now, in 2023, the United States has exactly zero active power plants using carbon capture technology. In fact, there is only 
one power plant in the world using it. That is kind of a small to mid-sized generation facility in Saskatchewan, Canada. The technology is new. It is somewhat unproven, and it is very expensive. Now, you may love these rules from a climate perspective. We all want CO2 out of emissions and out of the air. But also know this. Right now, coal and natural gas make up about 60% of America's daily electricity generation. In fact, today, in the upper Midwest, coal was one-third of all power generation. Some in the energy business say that with the added cost of carbon capture, many or all coal power plants will either shut down or be forced to dramatically jack up their electricity rates to pay for this technology. There's a lot of climate issue here, but let's focus on the business side of this story. Joining us now is Mike Summers, American Petroleum Institute president and CEO. And, you know, Mike, you're coming on and people say, "Okay, here's a fossil fuel guy. Clearly they hate it and they're going to slam it. I don't know. We haven't spoken before this. I could see a situation where the natural gas industry could rail publicly, but privately be thinking, guess what? We get to pick up all this coal electricity generation that's going to probably be shut down because they, they can't do it and make any money without charging us like massive amounts for electricity. Where do you and the API stand? Well, the one question I think that everyone has to ask here is, what is this going to do for reliability within our electricity markets? Oh, it's got to be terrible. It's got to be horrible. There's real concern that uh, this proposal going forward could mean uh, unreliable electricity markets. In fact, as you know, Brian, uh, PJM, which is the big grid operator here in the Mid-Atlantic, has already said that by 2025, we might not have enough electricity. And that means we need more natural gas plants in particular, not fewer, And what this plan, if put into place, and there's a 60-day comment period right now, if put into place, it could mean less natural gas uh, on our marketplace. And that would mean less reliability for American consumers and American businesses. And and we hit that story a couple of weeks ago, but I want to reiterate it to everybody that's listening. If you live from North Carolina to Pittsburgh and up to New York City, that I think that's about a third of the American population probably that lives in that so-called Mid-Atlantic Corridor. Our electricity router, for lack of the grid operator, PJM, came out about a month ago to your point and said, we may not be able to make enough electricity to keep the lights and the heat or the air conditioning on. They dropped that report like a hot rock on a Friday night. I reached out to them. They basically said, we're not talking. We're not making anybody available. So the grid operator is warning, we may not have enough electricity, Mike, But at the same time, the EPA is making a move, which whatever you think about the climate side is going to probably shut down almost all coal plants in the country. I I don't understand where the extra power is. Where is it coming from? Magic? Like, where is it coming from? Well, we also have to remember the climate side. You brought up the climate side. One of the key reasons that the United States has been able to cut emissions over the course of the last decade is because of a fuel switch from coal to natural gas. And this rule, if implemented the way that the EPA is talking about, could put natural gas plants at risk. And what that means is that American consumers won't have access to the energy that they need to fuel our economy uh, and to continue to grow the middle class with inexpensive, reliable energy. So I think the real concern is, is not just that it's going to shut down coal plants, but the impact that it could potentially have on natural gas plants, which have been the reason 
why the United States leads the world today in cutting emissions. Yeah. That's the real concern. So you're sacrificing reliability and you're sacrificing environmental performance. Yeah, I, but I will say this, and, and Mike will let you go. Uh, Talk to a couple people today. Unlikely these rules stand up to judicial scrutiny, probably overturned by a court because carbon capture is not a proven technology and you can't force an industry to adopt a technology that is not proven because you could literally destroy that industry. Mike Summers, the API, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, still ahead, Jamie Dimon taking on short selling. He wants the SEC to ban it on bank stocks, but he may be targeting the wrong enemy. Lydia Moynihan and Herb Greenberg are up next. All right, welcome back. I want to recap the breaking news that you might have heard a few minutes ago, and if not, well, it's new news to you, and that is the Wall Street Journal and Puck now reporting that NBC Universal ad head Linda Yaccarino will become the next CEO of Twitter. Again, the journal breaking the story, Dylan Byers of Puck, who we're going to have on in a couple of moments, is confirming that as well. Linda Yaccarino, who runs our ad business, also the chair, by the way, of the Ad Council, the big trade group, will become the new CEO of Twitter and begin in about six weeks. We know Linda. We like Linda. Congratulations if it is true. But Linda, please get us through up fronts on Monday and next week before you take over the Twitter job. We'll get more with Dylan Byers in just a moment. All right, meantime, a quick last call watch list for you. And tonight, a big stock sale by a top J.P. Morgan executive catching our eye. The bank's president and COO, a guy named Daniel Pinto, there he is, disclosed he sold 113,600 shares of J.P. Morgan. That is nearly $15.5 million worth of stock. He still owns over 500,000 shares after the sale, but selling about, what, 15 to 18% of his entire stake in J.P. Morgan Chase. Stock right now is flat. We'll see how it does tomorrow. Meantime, speaking of J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon speaking out on the problem that just will not go away. Regional bank woes. Shares of PacWest slammed again, losing another 23% of investor value. The L.A.-based regional bank disclosing it lost nearly 10% of its total deposits just last week. And that news putting a drag on the markets. The Dow fell for a fourth straight session. Recession fears, by the way, also creeping up on some weaker unemployment numbers. Banks, though, certainly a big part of the pain. It has been two months since the start of the mess. Four big banks have failed so far, and they have total deposits totaling hundreds of billions of dollars. And now J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon wants the SEC to look into short selling of these bank stocks, saying in an interview that, quote, if someone's doing anything wrong, people going short and then making a tweet about a bank, they should go after them and vigorously. So do short sellers using social media deserve some or all the blame for this banking beatdown? Let's take it to our panel. Joining us tonight, Empire Financial Research Editor Herb Greenberg, New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan. Herb, you know, every time there's a call to ban shorts or to go after shorts for this or that, I just think it's, it's never worked. But does Jamie Dimon have a point? I don't know what Jamie's talking about. He's a smart guy. I really like him. I think he's misguided here unless he knows something. And if you look very carefully, he's saying if they were doing something wrong, obviously short sellers were early in pointing out the problems at SVB and Silvergate. I think short sellers are always the easy populist scapegoat. There's actually something else 
and I consider it the story nobody's talking about that actually could be having a greater impact on this, Brian, not the short sellers, but it actually could be just that you have these somewhat illiquid stocks, that's the regional banks, many of the regional banks of 100 and some odd, 143, 145, inside a very liquid vehicle, that's the ETF, the regional bank ETF, the KRE as it's often called. And I think that aspect of it, for people who really understand the way, the inner workings, the, the complex, the not easy explanation, is really what may go, be going on here. Because those ETFs, because of the way yeah. ETFs are created, they could end up any selling there. That can cause this exaggerated result that we see in many of these smaller names. Lydia, your take? I mean, I don't think Jamie Dimon is an unbiased observer. Obviously, he wants bank stocks to remain high. You know, any volatility in a regional bank uh, often affects larger bank prices. So he wants things to be as stable as possible. And I think what he's talking about here is basically just making sure that the SEC is not asleep at the wheel. He's talking about collusion. That's something the SEC is always going to be monitoring. These are things the SEC is always keeping an eye on, various stock trading activity. That doesn't actually mean that short sellers are doing anything wrong. So I think there's a few things going on here. Obviously, the SEC needs to be doing its job of enforcement, but it doesn't mean that somebody who's just paying attention to what's going on and looking at kind of reading the tea leaves uh, is necessarily to blame for this whole situation. Well, I, I think, Herb, that what, what Di- again, I can't speak for Jamie Dimon. Jamie, you're welcome to call in the show. You still owe me lunch from a bet we made 10 years ago, by the way, uh, which is using social media as well. I don't think it's just the act of short selling, Herb. I think it's, you know, shorting the stock and then using social media to spread your message. I think that I think that's Assuming more of a Assuming it's manipulative and it's wrong and intentionally wrong. Don't forget, there were short sellers who were raising red flags about SVB months, months before the bank failed. Yes, on Bill Martin, media, my friend, sharing. my friend, Bill Martin of Raging Capital. Bill Martin was Bill Martin and several others were out there. He was probably the most, you know, he was the loudest, but plenty of a few of them were out there. So where do you draw the line? You draw the line if it's intentionally misleading and then that perhaps becomes manipulative. Yeah, well, we'll see where this goes. I mean, I guess, Lydia, if we get another couple bank failures, maybe the government actually maybe starts to rave, raise their wave the red flag a little bit more. You, you say that so casually. Just a so few casually. more bank failures. Another day in the life here at CNBC. Yeah, I, I also want to address, too, because one of the topics of conversation that's come up in recent days is whether there should be a halting of uh, short selling on banks, which I think... You know, anytime there's a problem, there's a bias to action. People want something to change, and that makes sense. We don't want more bank failures. And yet, I think you look at some of the solutions that people are talking about, for instance, halting uh, those short sales of the bank stocks. We've tried that before. It was not effective back in 2008 when we implemented that. That didn't help at all. Bank stocks continued to, to drip dramatically, right? It sends a signal to the market that regulators have to step in, and that doesn't assuage anybody, right? It signals that basically they're holding it all together with a, a lick and a prayer and some safety pins, and that's not a comforting market. Yeah. So it's, it's messy, but that's, that's the stock market. That is. And, uh, you know, Jamie is, a, you know, taking, getting a lot of deposits from First Republic, but he probably just doesn't want to have to be the, quote, hero every time here. Lydia Moynihan, Herb Greenberg, thank you both very much. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, we're going to have a little fun. Chess champ Gary Kasparov is here. In 1997, he was famously beaten by a computer. So what does he think about artificial intelligence now? Should we fear it? We'll ask him next.
you know what happened 26 years ago today? The world got its first glimpse of artificial intelligence outsmarting a human. That's when IBM supercomputer Deep Blue, remember that, beat chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov. Kasparov is immediately going to have to defend. Well, Kasparov cannot be a happy man, Mike. No, he was not a happy man. Deep Blue was able to calculate as many as 200 million moves a minute. Kasparov conceded for the first time in his career when a reporter asked him why the chess legend surrendered. Kasparov said he lost his fighting spirit. Probably easy to do against a computer. Joining us now is the chess legend himself, Gary Kasparov. He is also the founder and chairman of the Renewed Democracy Initiative. Uh, Gary, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. You were the first example of this. And by the way, I mean, no shame in losing to a computer that can do 200 million calculations in a minute. Should we fear or embrace AI right now? No, thank you for reminding me about this uh, Sorry. glorious Who's day. Who's the producers? Them. And, uh, <laughs> not a very glorious day in, in my career uh, because it was the first match I lost, not against machine, but against anyone. Uh, just one correction, Deep Blue calculated 200,000 million positions per second, not a minute, uh, in average. Uh, but okay, it still uh, doesn't change very much. Uh, um, yeah, as a first knowledge worker who had his job threatened by a machine, People always expected me to have a grudge against computers, and I, uh, I didn't. Yes, it was a really unpleasant moment. Yes, I, uh, I, re I keep recalling it, but time heals the wounds. And now I think I'm very proud that I was part of this experiment. I, know can, I also can remind that it was a rematch because I won the first one in 1996 in Philadelphia. But the key is that uh, it's the, this match and this loss uh, taught me that the future would not be about us competing with computers, but working with them. And for 25 years uh, following this, this disastrous event for me, mm -hmm. I've been promoting the idea of cooperation, collaboration between humanized computers. That's why I'm always very skeptical uh, hearing uh, all these uh, doomsayers uh, uh, predicting the end of I, humanity because of the rise of the machines. I, I, mean, I don't... Let's uh, stop watching uh, Hollywood movies, uh, brainwashing uh, 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 images of Terminators and metrics. I don't worry about working with computers. I, I agree with you. I worry, though, about working someday for a computer when they start not only thinking for themselves, but also writing their own software to better themselves a la The Matrix. Yeah, first of all, again, it's, just, it's the it's there's the two things. One is just, you know, machines operating, you know, on the cognitive side, one on, on you know, on the robotic side. Uh, by the way, as for robotic side, contrary to all these Hollywood movies or uh, sci-fi books, uh, the mm -hmm. progress is m minimal. So there's, there's, there's no real movement uh, uh, that could threaten, you know, uh, humans, which is quite ironic because we thought that would be easier. Uh, as for uh, machines uh, taking over more and more on the cognitive side, mm -hmm. again, there is no shred of evidence that machines can make real self-improvement yeah. that will make us redundant. Machines in the past made us stronger, made us faster, and, and better. machines will make us smarter. And only cost us to use them effectively. Only cost us six million, the six million dollar man. Gary Kasparov, really appreciate your views. Have to leave it there. Got a lot of breaking news. Thank you very much. We're back with more on that big Twitter hire next.
Twitter is going to have a new CEO, and that new CEO, according to reports, is Linda Yaccarino. She is NBC Universal, our company's current head of advertising, the former chair of the Ad Council. This is who Elon Musk has picked to be his next CEO. For more, let's bring in Pucks, Dylan Byers, who confirmed and broke that news tonight. Do we have any idea when these negotiations to hire Linda began? No, I don't know when they began. And uh, look, I, I don't think any of us knew that he was preparing, that Elon Musk was preparing to hire a new CEO until he announced it a few hours ago on Twitter and sort of tipped us all off to, to start the hunt to figure out who that was. Uh, uh, but look, in retrospect, this makes a lot of sense. Lindy Acarino is seen as sort of a rock star in the world, in the, at least in the television industry, in the world of advertising and sort of updating the in- industry with better advertising metrics responsible for a lot of the revenue that NBC Universal brings in through advertising, particularly in streaming on Peacock. And if you look at the state of Twitter right now, Elon Musk, you know, he has his developers, he has the tech. Um, what he does not have is a grasp on on advertising and on advertising revenue. And she brings that know-how. And yeah. so it, it seems, you, you Dylan, have we have 30, 30 seconds up to the show. It seems like this is a big, uh, a big, we now know Twitter's direction. We do now know Twitter's direction and and the idea that you could carry Twitter financially by charging anyone who would pay $8 a month for a blue check mark. Obviously, that's not working out. And Mm -hmm. and, and this seems to be vindication of a more familiar model that relies on advertising. Dylan, Dylan Byers breaking the news on Puck Dylan. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for us. Tune in 5 a.m. Worldwide Exchange Squawk Box. We'll have much more on the story. See you tomorrow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.